This is Sachi Wellcast. I'm Paul Monis. I've gathered a panel of volunteers to answer some questions about dietary fiber and to find out how much they know about this stuff. Let's see what they have to say. Um, welcome, everybody. So uh, we're going to talk about dietary fiber. Please grab some snacks. Okay. Um, okay. Mm. I'm having a prune. Yeah? You oh. are. And what do you think? It's actually very good. When I say dietary fiber, what comes to mind? Snack bars. I think full belly. Like, fiber fills me up. Making your bowel movements coming at a regular pace. Well, did you know that popcorn is actually considered a very good source of dietary fiber? I did not. Are some fibers better than others? Like, is popcorn better than prune? There's tons of different kinds of fibers, and you can get it from even, for instance, oranges, which we have here. Um, is considered a surprising but very good uh, source of fiber. How much fiber are you supposed to get? How much are you supposed to eat? Like servings or calories or grams? It is. I do not know. So it's uh, the recommendation is like 20 to 30 grams per day. I was going to guess 20. That's my hunch. Yeah, so it looks like... Six prunes is about three grams of fiber. So you have to really that sounds low. down this bag. Yeah, yeah. daily. <laughs> yeah, for your daily. You better bag. like prunes, right? Yeah, yeah, twenty thirty grams of fiber might not sound like that much, but it's kind of hard to uh, hard to get. So I have this um, psyllium husk powder. Which who wants to be the guinea pig? You know what it's you know yeah. what it's like. Mm-hmm. Never heard of psyllium so, husk. So uh, I'm sorry, Paul. What what is what? How much did you just serve me? This is going to be like a full three. Serving? Three grams, I think. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. You need like yeah. six prunes, but one teaspoon of fiber oh, dust. You're getting well. a lot. Do <laughs> <laughs> you get fast? It's going to start. Change color? You have to really Ooh, it. that is an ugly Don't color. Even look just shotgun it. Trust me. Everyone's got their favorite kind of fiber. Yeah. This you know? is going to be at the bottom of my list. Uh, why don't we listen to some of these interviews? Cool. Let's do it. I'm here with Pooja Shaw, our intern for the summer. Hi, Pooja. Hey, Paul. So let's just get into it. What's dietary fiber anyways? I'm glad you asked. Dietary fiber is what we call the indigestible parts of plants, like roughage from kale or whole grains, or even kinds of sugars your body can't absorb from fruit or other vegetable foods. Experts say we should eat at least 25 grams of dietary fiber every day. That's about what you get in four cups of oatmeal. But most of us eat less than a quarter of that. But isn't fiber just for people who can't go to the bathroom? Like, why do we need it anyways? In the, in the nutrition and gut health space, it's, it's all about the fiber these days. And so there's just, um, it's a, just one of the hottest areas there is, as you probably have discovered. That's Dr. Robert Hutkins, professor of food science at the University of Nebraska. He explained that fiber has many benefits other than just as a laxative. I, I give a lot of talks to um, nutritionists and, and dietitians. I end up saying that um, fiber is good for so many other reasons, but it's good for, like I said, for heart disease, for regularity, um, uh, for satiety, for, um, um, for losing weight. So it has so many other benefits. Many of these benefits come from soluble fibers. Pooja, do you know what my favorite fiber is? No, Paul. What is your favorite fiber? Soluble fiber. And what is soluble fiber? This kind of fiber, as the name suggests, dissolves when eaten. 
These fibers do things like trap cholesterol in your gut and help keep it lower in the blood. And they feed the billions of beneficial microbes living in your gut and keeping you healthy. Hmm. Now, some soluble fibers are also called viscous fibers. Now, do you know what my second favorite dietary fiber is? Hmm. Let me guess. Is it viscous fibers? No, it's soluble fiber. <laughs> my real favorite fiber is viscous fiber. Of course it is. And what are viscous fibers? Viscous fibers are the long spaghetti-like molecules that, like a cold bowl of oatmeal, thicken the contents of your digestive tract as you eat them. Uh, okay. That's actually a good thing, though, because then the food releases nutrients into your system more gradually. Gradual digestion helps keep you feeling fuller longer and lowers blood sugar spikes that can contribute to weight gain, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. Mm. So some people talk about foods having a low glycemic index. Is this the effect that they're talking about? Exactly. Gradually digesting low GI foods have some clear metabolic benefits, but that's not all. Dr. Marie-Pierre Sainong, a food and nutrition researcher at Columbia University in New York City, has studied another surprising effect of high fiber and low glycemic index foods. We have looked at you know, how food intake influences sleep at night, and we've seen uh, effects or relations between the fiber content of the, me- of, um, of the day's diet and the saturated fat content of the day's diet as influencing sleep at night. Um, there's been a few studies also looking at glycemic index of foods and timing of these meals and how it influences sleep at night. What I'm curious, what do those say? What What's the finding generally? In our study, when we found that um, higher sugar intake promoted more arousals, so maybe, you know, you fall asleep, but but your your sleep is more disturbed at, at night. Mm. And in, in our studies, um, higher fiber intakes were related to uh, more slow-wave sleep, so more restorative sleep. So according to Dr. St. Ong, fiber makes you sleep better? That's what their research suggests. Dr. St. Ong explained that the body sees simple sugars from fast-digesting foods as quick energy that can wake you up, kind of like a four-year-old who's eaten too much birthday cake. Hmm. Higher fiber, slower digesting foods seem to do the opposite and help you relax. Um, so what about insoluble fibers? Ah, no, this is my real favorite dietary fiber. This is what people usually think of as fiber because it's fibrous and doesn't digest when you eat it. Like fruit skins, seed kernels, or roughage from leafy greens? Yes, exactly. Or even things like cotton from clothing or office paper, you know? <laughs> but, of course, these kinds of plant fibers you, you wouldn't eat. Insoluble fibers hold more nutrients in food until you're ready to digest it. Also, because these fibers stay intact in your gut, they brush the walls of the intestines and potentially help remove precancerous cells from the colon. Ah, so that prune thing is just an urban legend? No, actually, fiber really does help make you go. All three kinds of these fibers work together to hold more water and bulk the contents of your colon. Meanwhile, they trick your body into moving foods more quickly through your digestive tract. Ah, so that's how it works. Right, exactly. So we ought to eat dietary fiber because it has many health benefits. But there's an even simpler reason why we need fiber in the diet. Because our ancestors ate massive amounts of it. Mm. Anne Gibbons, correspondent for Science Magazine, has shared the story with us. 
I've been writing about human, been sort of the lead human evolution writer for science for a long time. But diet has turned out to be a very interesting component of this, reconstructing ancient diets. You know, what can we learn from them? Would you like to say a, a sentence or two introducing yourself? My name is Ann Gibbons, and I'm a contributing correspondent for science. I've been writing about human evolution for a couple of decades, and one of my focuses has been on the evolution of the human diet. If you could trace for us the role of fiber in our diets from hunter-gatherer era through to the modern diet, and what implications that has for why fiber is healthy for us as modern humans. Absolutely. There's three major revolutions in our diet. The first is, you know, adapting for the big brain. Second is agriculture. The third is the Industrial Revolution. Those were three major changes in how we gathered food and, and ate. And the other part of it is to remember that a paleo diet is about adapting. A successful paleo diet allows people to have more babies. It's not about longevity. <laughs> it's so interesting to me, having visited hunter-gatherers, I just was with the Hatsa in December, camping with them, and I've been with hunter-gatherers in Papua New Guinea and other places, how diverse their diets are and how they eat just whatever they can because most people, until 100 years ago, just couldn't get enough food. You know? It's very interesting to look, look at what healthy diets are, are around the world and how diverse they are. But they do all have fiber, maybe unless you're an Inuit, but, but other than that, they have lots of fiber. So That's, that's a, an excellent intro. There's so much clinical and basic science and nutritional science showing that fiber does incredible things for our health. And, you know, we, we do have this sort of evolutionary heritage of chimpanzees, right? Eat tons of fiber. It's just, that's who we are. Like the fundamental paleo diet in the broadest stroke includes lots of fiber. That's, that's, exactly. so that's my hypothesis. Absolutely. So humans are primates and our closest living relatives on the planet today are chimpanzees and gorillas, both of whom, their diet mostly plants, fruits, nuts, leaves, gorillas in particular, eat a lot of rough foliage, and they end up having to spend most of their day to get enough calories. So our ancestors, for millions of years of diets that were mostly plant foods and highly fibrous, for example, the Hatsa hunter-gatherers get 69% of their calories from plants. And these are tough, tuberous root vegetables and like beets and things like that. They eat nuts, they eat seeds, maybe less fiber than a chimpanzee, but a chimp has to spend most of its day foraging for food. With the evolution of the big brain, starting about 1.8 million years ago, 2 million years ago, we had to get a lot more calories more efficiently. Our brains, they need lots and lots of carbohydrates to fuel, especially in babies and children. You know, the brain doubles in size in the first year of life. So how do you feed that voracious brain? And, and what we did is we then started eating couple different ideas, eating more meat, but also the cooking. Sometime between 1.6 million years ago or 600,000 years ago, our ancestors began to cook. It, it helped break down the fiber so that they could get the calories more efficiently and spend less time gathering food, which then probably allowed for more complex behavior and the beginnings of early culture. The second major revolution was about 10,000 years ago to the invention of agriculture. And when we invented agriculture, cultivating all sorts of plants and then later animals, they ended up relying, though, on fewer crops, so their diets became less diverse, and the nutrients they got were less diverse than what hunter-gatherers got. There was a real trade-off. By using agriculture, we got calories more reliable, but the quality of the diet wasn't as good. But there still, I think, was a fair amount of fiber in the agricultural diet. The third, the third revolution, though, is the Industrial Revolution with the invention of mechanized steel roller mills in the, in the 19th century, the late 18th century. They began processing the grain. We left out some of the omega fatty acids, some of the, a lot of the fiber in the food. So today's Western diet and just isn't as healthy as what we had either from the 
traditional agricultural diet or especially from hunter-gathering diet, which is probably the very best diet. Looking at the long arc of human diet and human evolution is much of what's enabled us to develop the way we have is, in a way, a struggle against fiber. Fiber locks nutrition in plants, and then cooking breaks down some of that fiber. That's helped us become who we are, but perhaps the modern diet takes that too far. Exactly. That's exactly how I think of it. What we're learning is the bacteria in the gut adapt more rapidly to diet. So, for example, before the genes for lactose tolerance spread in human ancestors, herders were probably making yogurt, getting dairy in their guts. The bacteria were adapting to that, right? You might not have needed to have the lactose tolerance gene to be, to be able to eat some dairy products as an adult. So, you know, that would also be true probably like for wheat and grains. People worry about the gluten sensitivity. Well, Actually, humans have been cultivating wild grains for a long, long time, even Neanderthals, and um, we have had time to adapt to grains in our guts, partly because of the bacteria, but even our dogs are adapted to eating gluten and grains. So that tells you how rapidly that happens. It's a combination of genes and our gut bacteria that help us adapt to different diets and foods. Uh, this has been extremely informative. Thank you very much, and um, hope we get to talk to you again soon. Take good care. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Sure. Bye-bye. It is so interesting, though. What I found really interesting is that she seemed to agree that fiber has just always been such a huge part of our diets. I don't know. It's very interesting that, like, the trend now is sort of reverting back to, like, what, how, what we did as hunter-gatherers, like, with the paleo diet. Yeah, it's interesting to realize that as societies grew, our diets became less diverse. Like, did early man have a better variety of you know, types of fibers and other nutrients than us just because they were hunter-gatherers. And then if that's good for the body, should we be thinking about how to diversify more? Now that we know about this dietary history and where we've come from as a species, right? So what does that mean then for physicians who are talking to patients about diet, about lifestyle? Some patients kind of know, but some don't really, aren't really aware of what fiber does or why it's good. So yeah, an interesting challenge for these physicians, especially because they really believe in it. I was wondering if you could just briefly introduce yourself. I'm an internal medicine practitioner. I'm in a single specialty group located in Atlanta, Georgia. I am the last solo general practice doctor in the area that is not a hospital employee. I'm in the middle of the state of Illinois. I'm an adult endocrinologist. I practice in multi-specialty clinic, and it's in Colorado, and I specialize in treating type 2 diabetes and uh, obesity. How do you approach the diet discussion with patients, and what role does dietary fiber play in that discussion? When they come for their annual checkup or wellness exam, we elaborate on a lot of issues related to their general well-being, the diet. I don't know that they understand why, but I, I do think they do need a little better guidance. I wouldn't call excited, but they are interested, especially when they seek medical help. They do want to know what are the advantages of adding fiber to the diet. Discussing a reasonably decent diet with my patients. Are you taking any fiber? Well, what do you mean fiber? Any kind of salad? Oh, doc, I'm not into salad. What about a fiber supplement? What are you talking about? That's the kind of discussions you have at the office. Usually it comes up 
because the patient brings it up. You are limited in the time that you can actually devote per patient. But if they let you get your foot in the door, like, Doc, I'm, I'm just not going to the bathroom like I should. And then you can go and say, excuse me, let's talk about your diet. I talk about diet almost with every patient with diabetes. It's extremely important. So usually I ask sort of a diet recall and then try to uh, define how much fiber they eat. So I think patients who are trying to lose weight, so they are more open to try you know, high fiber diet. How do you explain the importance of fiber? How do you get that across? I tell them you need fiber because it's healthy for your colon. You have more regularity, you feel better. The, the problem starts back with the doctors. They get little or no training in anything dietary, period. It's not part of the curriculum. How much fiber do you tell your patients to eat in a day? So, and I usually recommend about 25 to 35 grams of fiber per day. So we usually recommend uh, food items that have at least three to five grams per portion. So that would be considered a high-fiber food. I suggest that they at least have 15 to 30 grams minimum fruits. The vegetables is a better form. If that doesn't help, then I would say adding a supplement would be wise, and that's the way I approach it with my patients. I don't try and quantify it because then the question is, well, if I eat a little of this and I eat that, is that going to equal what you're talking about? A successful transition would be to what we consider somewhat of a balanced diet. If you're going to do A, you do B also. In other words, if you're going to go out to have dinner, you do order a salad, you eat the salad. So do you feel like you eat enough fiber yourself? Anywhere from 15 to 30 grams is my goal. I do spread my meal plan with enough fruits, veggies, and along with it, I take supplements, which has added fiber to it. So I do feel uh, I would practice before I preach. <laughs> I, have, I, can't, I have no idea on a calculation, but any time I eat, like cereal, you eat whole wheat. Uh, lunch, I make darn sure there's plenty of lettuce if I'm going to have a sandwich. Dinner, I always have a salad. The problem is, okay, if you leave my office and go out for lunch, first thing you're going to hit is an Arby's. Then you're going to hit McDonald's. Then you're going to hit Hardee's. There's no healthy food headed down my street. There isn't. I think I do because I'm vegetarian, eating a lot of um, fruits and vegetables. I think maybe I should reevaluate and see how much fiber I eat. I think I'm, I'm meeting the recommended requirements. This has been extremely informative. Thank you very much. It's, it's also, I think, a function of one's upbringing. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you grew up with a certain palate vis-a-vis -vis your parents. So how do, you, how do you change that upbringing? Because you sort of walk into life and they sort of start throwing a certain level of food at you. You, te you tend to gravitate towards that. I mean, if your expectations are McDonald's, you're not, you're not exactly running for the salad bar, you know. That idea about how different communities relate to food and then thinking about what's a good nutritional base. So, for example, I am a member of a CSA in my neighborhood, um, and so it's all locally grown produce that you get on a weekly basis. But, you know, culturally I'm not familiar with what grows in upstate New York, so things like 
beets are really odd to me. And I know they're probably pretty healthy for you and got lots of vitamins in there, but to think about how to incorporate that in my diet is kind of a challenge. And so if you're not used to fiber-rich foods, how to think about how to prepare them and make sure you eat them regularly can be a nuance to this conversations that physicians have. It's an have. educational issue. I mean, yeah. It really is. I studied psych and neuroscience and got really into brain health in college at Harvard College and wanted to work in that field but couldn't figure out a way to do that. And then once I graduated and started working a desk job, I just felt cognitively fatigued on a daily basis. I would get brain fog and you know, headaches and mental crashes really regularly. And I discovered that was almost entirely due to diet. And so I became obsessed with this idea of eating for the brain. The basic idea of that is eat fat, not carbs, and fortify your brain with certain nutrients that most people don't eat on a daily basis. So I became totally sold on this after implementing it in my own diet because I started seeing results. And I totally switched over to like a paleo slash keto slash low carb kind of a diet. Basically just stopped eating bread, pasta, things of that nature, and ate much fattier things like avocados, nuts, ate more fatty protein, and everything got better. And so the need there was I couldn't like afford to spend a ton of time cooking all the time, and I really just wanted a ready-to-eat product that was optimized for the brain, and I couldn't find one. So I spent about a year doing quote-unquote R&D, basically me in my kitchen, and in spreadsheets focusing in on you know, what are the nutrients that there's the most scientific backing that they're good for your brain for XYZ reason could be energizing, could be fortifying, could be preventing neurodegenerative diseases, the, the whole gamut. Uh, what are those nutrients and how can I get them into one serving size? And a bar is kind of a logical way to do that because it allows you to aggregate a bunch of things into one, you know, 45 gram serving. Not, not, no other medium really allows you to do that. So that's kind of the story behind it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear you describe a little bit of the R&D process where you really approached selecting ingredients for, it sounded like, um, you know, their scientific basis for how they support brain function and, and um, sort of brain wellness. Um, could you describe a little bit more about that and how you landed on the amount of fiber and the ingredients of fiber that you did? Yeah, so fiber is an interesting one. It's functional in every sense of the word. What I mean by that is when you're creating a bar, there's only a few things that cause food ingredients to stick together. And they're basically all carbs. It can be sugars. But fiber is a nice alternative carb, for, especially for products like mine. It causes everything to stick together, but actually impacts blood sugar negligibly. So, I mean, you basically register no blood sugar spike. But it's also functional from a nutritional standpoint. So, you know, one of the hot topics in brain health lately is the gut-brain uh, connection. The enteric nervous system, you know, which includes your gut, is now basically considered to be a second brain because it communicates with your brain so frequently and profoundly, you know, to the point where your mood changes based on things you eat, your memory capacity changes based on things you eat. And a huge piece of that is how healthy is your gut microbiome. And so, so you know, by adding in prebiotic fiber to, to feed that gut microbiome, your 
keeping it happy and allowing it to produce chemicals that aid in protecting cognitive function and, and brain cells. I know you picked, um, is it 12 grams of fiber per uh, per bar? Uh, if I remember right, that's quite yeah, we're a lot. Actually, we're, yeah, we're actually dialing that back. So the, the new products we're about to come out with, we've scaled it back to 7 to 8 grams. The reason being that GI friendliness, the fact of the matter is if you put 12 grams of fiber in your in your stomach, depending on who you are, there's a decent chance that upsets your stomach, which, again, you, you know, maybe it's technically good for your gut bacteria despite certain things like creating gas, but no one's going to want to eat that again, you know? That's still quite a lot, though, 7 to 8 grams. Yeah, it is, but... People, like most people, are highly fiber deficient. And so it's not as if you're eating like kale three times a day. You're probably eating a fiber-rich thing one time a day and a couple times a day you're not. So we're filling the gap basically. Like If you eat like most people and then you eat an IQ bar, you're probably going to hit your dietary fiber goals because everyone's pretty much everyone is short on those um, as a baseline. So let me ask a personal question then. How much fiber a day do you eat? <laughs> Honestly, I don't. I'm not. I'm not a calorie counter. I'm not a fiber counter. But I would say, you know, generally speaking, I'll try to hit like 20 grams a day. Interesting. Yeah. It sounds like most people just by eating one of these bars, they would instantly maybe double their daily intake. Uh, it's just, it's pretty amazing how um, fiber deficient most people's diets are. Uh, well, it's been fascinating learning about your product and wishing you the best of luck. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. So I'm going to just pop open some of these IQ bars. So I'm going to pass these around. What flavors do we have? Are they the same? Matcha chai hazelnut is the dark That's one. This one. And then we have what flavor is this? Oh, blueberry lemon sunflower. Yeah, it's really good. The reddish one. Tastes healthy. Yeah. It plays into the idea of um, like quantified self, yeah. or like trying to eat for optimal outcomes. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't, and I, maybe I missed it, is I didn't realize that fiber had sort of an integral part to brain health or brain function. It's sort of this new understanding about fiber in that you're not just eating fiber for you and for your gut and for your body, but it's the microbiome, all the, the microbes in your gut. They're the ones that feed on the fiber, soluble fiber, insoluble fiber, etc. And um, then they release various um, substances, metabolites that can affect your body all over. So it can help um, brain function, Etc. I like the lemon blueberry. Gonna be full for hours. <laughs> we're we're gonna get our 20 grams today. Oh yeah. And each of these has eight grams of fiber per well, that's bar. That's a lot. So. It's tastier than I would have initially thought, because uh, I think when you think of fiber products, you think of some dry fiber bar that's hanging out at the bottom of your gym bag. But um, yeah, oranges, the popcorn. Um, and some of these newer bars are pretty yeah. tasty. Can you eat popcorn more guilt-free now? Prunes. My new favorite fruit. Yeah, and I think as, as we talked about a little bit, as more attention is being paid to fiber and diet and where food's coming from and what it's really doing for you, I think we'll start to realize that fiber food and healthy food in general is, is more delicious than anyone realized. Cheers to that. 
to learn more about what makes Dietary Fiber so special, check out the links on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash SachiWillCast. You can also follow new episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. This episode of Saatchi Wellcast was created with help from Jennifer David, Jacob Strunk, John Devine, Emily Sheehan, Pooja Shaw, and me, Paul Modis. Saatchi Wellcast is a production of Saatchi and Saatchi Wellness and produced in beautiful downtown New York City, New York. You can find us on Twitter at at SSWellcast. Please send any questions or comments to sswellcast at saatchiwellness.com.